Lobo, it's Halloween. Yes, it is. My favorite time of year. You know, Halloween means a lot of things to a lot of people. But to me, it's all about decorating the house all creepy and dressing up in a costume. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. After that, we carve the turkey and give thanks for all the stuff we have. Oh, dude, that's Thanksgiving. And the kids, they pull out the clay dreidels that they've been making all year, and we spin them as we light the Halloween menorah. Oh, what? After that, we set off red, white, and blue fireworks in the backyard, you know? Oh, really, dude? That's like the 4th of July? we run out of fireworks, we all go inside, sit around the fire, roast some heads, and read stories out of the Necronomicon. Pretty sure that book's not even real. What about trick-or-treating and getting candy? That's Hanukkah, dude. Oh. You're a few months early on that one, anyway. What? After the stories, the kids get their corned beef and cabbage out of the stockings that we've hung over the fireplace. No. Then we sacrifice virgin midgets to the great destroyer Azathoth. God, really? Then we finish off the night by drinking blood from a thermos, you know, like everybody does. Dude, you're a idiot. All you did was mix a bunch of holidays and add some HP Lovecraft. And who drinks blood out of a thermos? Really, man? You don't need to be such a damn blanket about it. I hope Santa doesn't leave an Easter egg in your pillow tonight. <sighs> Happy Halloween, Lobo. Happy Halloween, Lerogen. Love you, man. Cthulhu bless us all. Everyone. Doesn't matter. That was from way back in episode 22, which we recorded with Kenny Klein, and it was about the history of Samhain, which later became known as Halloween. Some people prefer to pronounce it as um, Han, which are usually punk rockers from my high school days because it was Glenn Danzig's old band. Anyways, that episode and any episodes pertaining to Mr. Kenny Klein will probably never be re-aired on this show ever again. We didn't know it at the time, but later on, after he'd ran those episodes that we'd recorded those episodes, he was busted for having child pornography on his computer and put into prison. Me personally, I believe that these people need to be destroyed for wasting the air that I breathe. But um, I didn't want to like that. That was a really funny clip. It was a little time capsule because that was our first attempt at trying to record something, quote, skit ish. And uh, I wrote it the night before. I didn't actually write it. I put it together like a couple of hours before. Lobo jumps on. I'm like, listen, this is what we're going to do. And back then we were much more screwball and clownier than we are now. And I kind of miss those days. But uh, we recorded that, I think, in two takes. About halfway through it, Lobo just kind of threw the script out the window and just ran with it. And I'm trying to like keep up. And I'm like, uh, 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 you can you can hear it when you listen to it. And uh, that was how it all came about. This week, we're recording a best of because life happens. Uh, We just got really busy and I wasn't able to book the guest that I wanted to have on the show. And in such short notice, I wasn't able to find anybody else. We were going to run a ramble cast, but Lobo had other things that he had to do with his family and so forth. And I just said, you know what? We'll just run a best of this week. I haven't ran one in a while. And I do apologize for that. I've just been, um, I've just been busy. Things are okay. Nothing's going crazy anymore. Things have really settled down in my life. Thank, thank the gods for the most part. But, um, I just, I just haven't ran best ofs lately. So this week we're going to run episode 44 when we had John Tenney on the show to talk about strangeness and interdimensional garden gnomes. John Tenney, is kind of um, a purveyor and collector of weird. Um, he's been an advisor on Paranormal State, The Next Class. Uh, I believe um, he's he's somebody that's behind the scenes and he's always been an advisor on all these like unsolved mysteries, things like that. He's been a person that's been involved with all these shows and conspiracy shows and so forth. He's a local guy. 
And uh, I run into him at different events every now and then. So I begged him and begged him, begged him, please come on my show. Please come on my show. He's a hard guy to nail down. Finally, he did. And he came on for this episode. And this was recorded way, way back. I can't remember specifically when. So again, our recording chops weren't up to par. Um, our editing equipment was different. Our microphones were different. And, and things were just different back then. The show was much rawer back in those days. But there's a lot of new listeners that haven't had a, heard a lot of these old episodes. So uh, I decided to rerun this one and it's a lot of fun but um things are going to be returning back to normal next week or as normal as they can be i just didn't want to have a week in october being that it's halloween and not have some kind of a show out there because this is our time of year when everybody else is going into like walmart and all the big stores and seeing christmas decorations and getting all excited we're walking into these same stores in like, you know, July and September and seeing the Halloween stuff come out. And we're the ones like, oh, guess Halloween's on its way. And, you know, the only downside is having to deal with pumpkin spice lattes. But other than that, you know, this this is our time of year. I, I love Halloween. Lobo loves Halloween. Most of you people love Halloween. I get to dress like a slutty podcaster every year. It's probably my favorite outfit. Yeah, get that visual in your head. So anyways, we're going to run this show. This is from um, way, way back. I can't remember what year we released it. It was under episode 100, so pff, that tells you. And uh, we're just going to fly with it, and we will see everybody next week. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. As far back as educated men have recorded their history, veils have been lowered to disclose a vast new reality, rents in the fabric of man's awareness. And somewhere in the endless search of the curious mind lies the next vision, the next key to his infinite capacity. Hey, boy, welcome back to Project Archivist, episode number 44, for our fourth attempt at trying to start the show without cracking up. Yes. Yeesh. Anyways, yeah, tonight we have a big heavy hitter on the show, and if you've been following us on Facebook, I gave a few hints, and then I finally spilled out who it was, and it's Mr. John Teeny. He was on Paranormal State, the next class. I believe he was on there for a couple of uh, couple of seasons. Paranormal Investigations, He's he's been an advisor for various different kinds of paranormal shows. The, the guy's resume, he's done everything, and there's just... He's got his own podcast. We're going to go into all that stuff in the interview process of the podcast. But first, we're going to play something that got hijacked from the show last week when Jeff and Jared jumped in when we were trying to record the original episode. Um, and that is the phone call from Satan. So I'm going to bounce <laughs> over to that right now and I'm going to let you everybody hear it. And then I'm going to come back. You know, let's let's just get this out of the way right now. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> We're getting phone calls from debt collectors for you now. <laughs> oh, great. So it, it, it is time It is time to play the voicemail that All I right, have referred on. to you. So, right, let me open it up. This is okay. <clears throat> Go ahead and play it. All right, hold on a second. Debt collectors, huh? I don't even answer them here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, hold on. It's opening. Uh... Hello there. My name is Beelzebub, but you can call me Beeboo. Everyone else here does. I'm not sure if I've called the right number, but I'm trying to get in touch with a 
Mr. Lobo Matthews. my last name. Matthews. Lord of what? Darkness can't even get your last Matthias. name. That's not. He, sh- he should know exactly I, who I am. You said his last name. Well, <laughs> no one can say it is. Uh, uh, Lobo. Yes, I'm looking for a Mr. No one can Lobo. say it anyway. <laughs> I'm calling on behalf of Dark Lord Industries, LLC, to inform Mr. Lobo that we have yet to receive his yearly um, tithe for his um, <coughs> subscription to New World Order magazine. This call is to inform Mr. Lobo that should he fail to pay on time, his uh, <coughs> subscription will be uh, canceled. <laughs> We have also not received Mr. Lobo's entry fee for the annual baby eating contest. If he would like to defend his title, he does need to get that entry fee to us as soon as possible. On a side note, after last year's blowout, there are a lot of us down here that have money riding on Mr. Lobo's title. If he needs some money for the entry fee, tell him to email me directly at RainbowSherbet1998 at AOL.com. Thank you for your time, all hail Satan. Yeah. I can't even get our voicemail to work yet. The Lord of Darkness somehow manages to get a message through to you. And of course he's through AOL. Yeah. Oh, that's epic win. Oh, my God. So that was the phone call from Satan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was unaware of your baby eating capabilities, but uh, hey, man, I've got skills. <laughs> you gonna renew your title ship or? Uh, oh, absolutely. Can you give it a shot. I, gotta, All right. I have to. I have to. Well, I know you've been in training. I know you've been watching <laughs> closely. Um, I train by eating peeps. You train by eating peeps. Because Pete, well, never mind. We won't go into that. <laughs> Anyways, let's just let's just roll into our interview with John Deeney. We'll see you at the other side. Well, we got a big heavy hitter on, as I posted up in the Facebook page. Got Mr. John Teeny on board, finally. Finally. <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to have you on last year, but because of storms and junk rolling through and then missed schedules and everything, we just could never really pull it off. But now a year later, we've managed to make it work. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, whenever I try and do interviews, there's always some kind of uh, galactic or governmental influence. No, not really, but <laughs> a lot of the times it has to do with... A lot of the times it has to do with just everybody's so busy with doing stuff, you know, like you guys have your podcast, I have my podcast, filming, and then just living your day-to-day life. I mean, trying to get something done consistently over and over just becomes a really difficult thing. Tell us as much of the stuff that you're involved in as you possibly can, because for me to try to cover your resume, I would spend probably half the show just reading stuff off. I'll start by saying that you're involved with Paranormal State, and I'll let you go from there. Yeah, um, I'll give you really quickly. Here's the, the, the quickest backstory I can give you is uh, I grew up in Michigan as kind of a uh, free thinking. I come from a, an, uh, actually a family of agnostics. And so I was never raised with religion. I grew up as a punk rock kid and I never did well with being told what I could and couldn't think. And uh, when I was about 15, I became an intern for a guy who was a Kennedy assassinologist, which is actually kind of a real thing. So <laughs> kind awesome. of. 
And uh, so I learned from him uh, how to deal with the government filing Freedom of Information Act requests. We spent time at the National Archives in Washington learning their systems. And then I was passed off to a Malcolm X researcher and then uh, assisted them for until I was about 18 or 19 with uh, lectures about political assassinations of the 1960s and 70s and government conspiracies. And when you do those types of lectures, you end up getting asked about UFOs. And so I wanted to be able to speak about that. So I started researching that with everything I knew how to do. And plus, at the time, I was going to school for psychology. So I would start to mention other types of anomalistic phenomena, things like ghosts, poltergeists. And before I knew it, now it's 25 years later and I do weird lectures, which is I just talk about any and everything that people think uh, might be weird. And that's cool because I've seen, at least locally from where, because me and you live somewhat close to one another, um, I see you post all the time. You do a lot of lectures just for free at local libraries and things like that, where people can just come down and you can just sit and, you know, and get some free, you know, get some free knowledge off of you. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's one of the things that I kind of learned uh, starting out when I did. Obviously, there wasn't an Internet. And the first, you know, four or five years that I was doing lectures, I would pay. I'd, you know, I'd pay to rent the room at the library. I'd pay to bring in the coffee and the cookies and and then uh, four or five people would show up and it would cost me $100 to do. And eventually it got to a point where because of the Internet, because of popular media, television, even shows like The X-Files, people started to show up at lectures. And I always felt that when I started seeing really well-known ufologists or conspiratorial researchers doing lectures and they were charging 50 or or $100 to hear theories, I mean, these are just to hear people's ideas that never really sat well with me. It's like my whole goal was to build and construct and exchange information with people. And I don't know why they should have to pay to do that. Like I don't, I don't go to a lot of paranormal conferences because a, you hear a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And I'm not comfortable with paying someone a hundred bucks to hear a lecture of rehashed information that you're going to hear on different shows and just around the internet anyhow. So for someone to come along and say, here, I'm doing this, come on down, hang out, be cool about it, and just listen to what I got to say, and maybe you can get something out of it. I thought that was really neat in a day and age where paranormals become kind of this thing that's for sale. Well, I, I've never been able to figure out, you know, the whole goal, you know, now that we have the Internet and we're all connected and we're always talking. Uh, I just like I just posted an event, which is I mean, it's funny, I call it an event, but it's really not like I told people, you know, you everyone knows that I'm interested in this and that I lecture on this and that I've been doing this for years and years. And so I just posted a thing that said, like, uh, two Thursdays from now, I'm going to go to the Coney Island over by my house. I'll be there for hours reading. Come and hang out with me and, and let's talk about stuff. When I was a teenager and when I was in my 20s. You know, we, we all just sat around Denny's and coffee shops and talked about weird ideas, and people don't do that anymore. They do it via the Internet. But, I mean, to just sit across the table from someone who has a different idea and be able to discuss it, you shouldn't be charged for, you know, exchanging information with someone else. Do you run into a lot of really odd people that way? Do you find that sometimes you open yourself up to stuff that's a little, that, that you know, people that you really don't want to talk to? Or do you, do you run into some really strangeness out there when you do that? You know, every now and then you do run into some people, but... It's, it's kind of a, I don't even know how to explain this. It's kind of a self-cleaning process. Like people who are really bizarre and really weird won't show up in public. So I don't really have to worry about that. I have, you know, people on Facebook who are constantly sending me emails and photos of, you know, I, I, I tried to let people into my world this week by uh, showing photos. Some, a couple in Michigan were sending me pictures of a multi-dimensional gnome 
that was living in their attic of their house. Was it the Red Dwarf? <laughs> well, so Yeah. Uh, so I just, you know, I woke up and I checked my voicemail and there was this message on there that said, Mr. Tenney, can you call us? My wife and I think we have a multidimensional gnome in our house, which is really funny when, you know, it's funny because a person contacts you because they don't know what they have in their house, but they think it's a multidimensional <laughs> gnome. That's a giant. That's a giant leap from not knowing to being pretty specific. It's not just a gnome; it's a multi-dimensional gnome. A multi-dimensional tentacle-armed gnome that dresses wow. that dresses in metallic clothing. Oh. So, uh, I I know these people. I've dealt with them before, and and I didn't post any of their personal information. But I wanted people via Facebook to kind of experience what I was ha- what was happening to me all day. So I started posting the photos and seeing people's reactions to it, and. You know, as a paranormal or anomalistic researcher, people really do, like you were saying earlier about, you know, people talk about the same stuff over and over and over again. My life over the past 25 years has been dealing with not only ghosts and, and haunted houses, but UFOs and abductees and time travelers and multidimensional gnomes and, and Bigfoots and <laughs> lake monsters. I mean, it, I have experienced everything that can be experienced and I say that now, knowing full well that next week I'll experience something that's brand new. <laughs> let's talk, you're, since you're the first person we've ever dealt with that's really been involved in the reality television world, let's talk about that for a little bit. I'll be kind of blunt about it. Since you've worked with paranormal reality television shows, how much, dealing with behind the scenes, how much of the stuff that happens on those shows, I don't want to say is staged, but how much of what happens with that is actually, do they, do they try to push you in certain directions behind the scenes? Do you have problems with uh, with like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that? Or do they even make you aware of some of this stuff? Have you seen hokiness go on behind the scenes? Well, the first kind of reality show that I worked on was actually back in the early 90s. I worked on Unsolved Mysteries, which is kind of the uh, first you generation. I was their historical researcher for five or six wow. different episodes. I used to watch that all the time. <laughs> and it was a great show, and I loved working for them, and, and everything on that show was on the up and up. And by about, I think it was about the fifth season, the fourth or fifth season, I, I had never been on camera. I only, you know, my name is just in the credits as historical research. But about the fourth or fifth season of that of that television show, I was approached by one of the executive producers, and I was told, you know, we need an expert and we know that uh, you've never been on camera, so we're just going to have you be the expert. We'll change your name and put you on camera. That was a huge firestorm, which left a string of obscenities that I'm sure is still hanging in an office in New York somewhere. <laughs> and, Jeez. <laughs> and I walked away saying I would never do reality television ever again. And I consulted on a few shows here or there, but I never attached my name really to anything. And then uh, about three years ago, A&E contacted me because they were going to do this Paranormal State spinoff show, which was Paranormal State, the new class. And they said, you know, we have a group of investigators who have only been doing this for a year. And our concept is that we want the audience to learn as they're learning, but we need someone to act as their mentor. Would you do that? And I said, absolutely, for sure. Uh, We hashed out contracts, what I would and wouldn't do, how I would be portrayed on the show. And during the first episode of the show, I was explaining to this family that we're investigating who thought that they had a ghost in their house. I was explaining all the different possibilities of what could be going on. Uh, they had a ton of things happening, like uh, power lines running through the foundation of their house and and a lot of uh, actually what's termed dirty EMF fields. They had a lot of old electrical equipment in the house. And one of the producers pulled me outside and he said, can you go back in there and tell them that there's a demon in the house? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And, you know, I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do it. And that was pretty much the end. You know, we we, we filmed some more stuff, but uh, I, I mean, I was over by that point. I, did, I had wanted nothing to do with it. Even to think after the negotiations that we had been through that it was appropriate to even ask me to make something up like that. And when you ask about how, at what level is it done on other reality shows, what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, you put your microphone pack on in the morning and your voice is recorded all day long. Mm -hmm. So when they're doing pre-production, in your contract it says that they can edit your voice, your image, your character, your representation on in any way that they see fit to make the narrative more interesting and appealing to the audience. So you might say... Uh, something to the effect of there's no way I'm going to say demon. And then earlier in the day, four hours later, you might have said, absolutely, uh, this 100% is going to be a great day. And then when the show comes on the air, you hear yourself saying in a faraway shot, you know, you can't see your mouth moving, they use a silhouette of you, and you hear absolutely 100%, this is a demon. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, it's a lot of times the people on the shows aren't making anything up, but the the production crews and the editors who are piecing it together, who are trying to take uh, four days worth of footage and cut it down into a 22 minute episode and, and make it something that people want to watch will do things like that. I've heard rumblings of stuff like that before, but you also hear people say, well, yeah, I was on the show, but to my knowledge, they never faked anything or nothing like that. And you kind of tend to wonder, well, is this person lying? Is the show lying? You know how much of how much of it's actually what's going on out there. Um, you're still involved with reality TV, though. Are they are they people still contacting you to come on their shows and stuff like that, even though you've had these mishaps? Yeah, um, I am not for certain shows and certain channels. I am not the most popular person because they know that I don't <laughs> do certain things. That's a good thing. Don't don't fret that. <laughs> and they also know, you know, for whatever reason, uh, and, and like uh, we kind of talked about off air, since I'm not under contract right now. They also know that I do talk when I am under contract sometimes, that uh, if something is really frustrating to me, you know, I will, I'm not the type of person who, uh, look at, I'm parsing my words now and I shouldn't be. I am one of those people, like if something upsets me, if something isn't correct, if something's not right, I will say it. Even if I'm under contract, I, I don't care about being sued. What I care about is that people get decent information and decent ideas into their head. Even if I'm under contract sometimes, if something really startling or shocking happens, I'll talk about it openly. And a lot of networks don't like that, but there are so many shows and so many production companies in existence right now. I get calls all the time. I just got done working with another network who was casting a show and we came to an impasse. And so that's, uh, I mean, that was last week. So it still happens all the time. I'm surprised like the cooking network hasn't contacted you about doing a paranormal show on there or something. It just uh, seems like everybody's got one now. You know, there was actually contact, and, and I don't know if this show will ever materialize. It won't be with me, but there there actually was a show that uh, I consulted with when they were looking for cast members called Food and Spirit. Oh, my no, God. No, and, <laughs> no. And, and there's, there's, there's actually a book out right now. I can't remember the name of the author, but she has published a book of recipes that she received from ghosts. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, like? Like shrimp fra diablo. I mean, is it like stuff like that, or it's it's just really great. It's these recipes that I mean, I don't know where she actually got them. From. I can't say that they're fake, but you know, they're 
they're these old recipes and it's like uh this is a recipe i got from a woman who died in 1810 and then you know it's not that hard to find recipes that are old and attribute them to ghosts but i don't know if that's what she's doing but. It's not i got a cookbook in my house yeah <laughs> i got a cookbook in my house now that was from it's from the late 17 early 1800s i mean right the food that they made was nasty but it's there I mean, I actually do have a, I, I do have a cookbook, which is actually funny that you brought that up, but uh, it, it's just something I self-publish and I pass around my friends, but it's called I Hope This Food Doesn't Kill You. Oh, and, really? Yeah, How do and, I get and, a copy of that? I can send you one, but it, I, I mean, get, that, I do the cooking in my house. I would love that. It's a, it's a book based off the fact that I'm a bachelor. I've been a bachelor my whole life, and you know, the subtitle of the book is Recipes for People Dumb, Drunk, and Tired. <laughs> Oh, sweet. I want a copy. <laughs> so there's things in there like, uh, you know, uh, I, I, there's a really, I have a really good recipe for Burger King salsa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, since we're talking about your books, let's talk about the newest one you've got about the EVPs. And you talk in there about how you've actually gotten some humorous EVPs. Let me preface the story. A few years ago, actually, it's been a long time ago now, I was out EVB hunting with a buddy of mine at a old abandoned cemetery. Well, it wasn't abandoned. It's over in New Boston, which, which is Detroit lingo. I'm sure you know where that is. Yep. And uh, there's a cemetery out there, and we were out there hanging out, and I had a Zoom digital recorder, and we were recording for EVPs. And I asked my buddy, what time is it? And then he, a second later, he says, you know, it was the time. Later on, we were going back and listening to the EVPs, and after our actually before I ask him the question, what time is it on the EVP, you hear something say, I don't want to say super clearly, but it was definitely there time for you to get a watch. And then there's a silence. And then my buddy gives me the time at what time it was. Um, I went back and listened to it. I wasn't so much um, interested in the fact that we got an EVP. What I found crazy was the fact that a, it was kind of funny, kind of smart ass. And B, I got the response of of what I asked before. The actual question was asked. So right. you hear the response, then the question, and then my buddy responds with the time. And my buddy's like, oh, we got an EVP. And I'm like, well, I don't care about that. How come I got an EVP before I asked the question of what we were talking about? And that was the only thing we got from the graveyard. But um, that was many, many years ago. But that one's always stuck with my head, A, because it was kind of funny. It was kind of smart ass, which I thought was unusual for something coming from the paranormal spooky realm. And B, we got it because it was before the question was asked. The answer was given before the actual question. Well, so. Well in the book, I'll tell you, in the book, the, the, the collection, the book is called One Last Thing. And, and what it is, it's over the past 25 years, it's the what people now categorize as Class A EVPs, which means that it doesn't need any digital manipulation whatsoever. You just hear the voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, over a lot of people are freaked out because the book is took me 25 years to compile, and the book is only about 70 pages long. And people are like, oh, I get 100 EVPs every weekend. And, I mean... I, I find that really doubtful from my research, but yeah. we have a story in the book that is uh, one of the transcripts of, of one of the conversations is called, uh, I think it's called uh, Back and Forth, and it's where the, the voice is answering questions before they're asked, so that we do have, there's a story in there. So this kind of thing has happened before then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, a lot of times what you find, and the reason I wanted to do the book was, you know, 
I've done this for a long enough period of time where my concepts of what I don't have any beliefs. Uh, I should state that to begin with. I have a lot of ideas about things, but I find beliefs don't work well in my life because they're so rigid, rigid and, and structured. And that is I, the correct answer. <laughs> I, like, I, I, I like to be fluid and I like to be able to change and adapt. So when I published the book, what I wanted people to do is I wanted people to see that sometimes if you get an EVP result, and, and it's something that's really, really strange and interesting is that it's not conforming to what a lot of people think it is. Uh, there's a, one of the first pages in the book uh, is a, a transcript called The Smart Alec. And it's an EVP session that I did in uh, 2005. And my, the, my first question is, was, how did you die? And the response that I get back is, what makes you think I'm dead? Ooh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. And, and then the, the second question, and, and the way I do EVP is I don't hear the responses. I, I do a traditional Rodiv uh, recording type technique, which is I don't hear it until I'm listening back later. So my second question was, are you here with me? And the answer comes back as no. And then my third question was, can I, can I, help, can I do anything to help you? And the response is, you can't even see me. <laughs> and so, the, yeah, and so there's, it's this really strange concept of when people think, you know, you see all the time on Facebook, people will post a picture saying like, oh, once I'm dead, I'm going to haunt everybody. Or once I'm dead, I'll spy on people in the showers. They post those little funny pictures with quotes and stuff like that. The concept is when you die, if you do become a ghost or a spirit, you're going to exist in an entirely new realm of existence. Why would you come back here and spy on people in the showers? It would be so vastly different. I mean, I explore the world I'm living in now. Why wouldn't I explore the world if I do live on in some way in another realm? Why, why would I spend any time coming back here just to say help or boo or yes or, or knock on a wall or turn a light on and off? Yeah. Because naked chicks are always cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Come back and give people recipes. But, uh, <laughs> right. Right. So let's talk about your podcast for a little bit because you have your own show, uh, called Rome of the Weird. Yep. It's available awesome. on iTunes. It is fun. It's a nice, interesting show. And uh, me and Lobo ourselves are fan of it, fans of the show. We listen to it. And we've got questions for you regarding the things that you've talked about on that show. Absolutely. So, Lobo, go ahead. You want to talk to him about the silver coin. Yeah. You, uh, in episode five, you spoke yeah. about a silver coin. They're not long episodes, but I was hanging the whole time. Okay. On that episode. Um, I come from Puerto Rican descent. It seems like every male in my family that ha is worth his weight in salt carries a coin of some form in their pocket okay my grandfather carried silver coins i have a silver coin i have a bronze coin my father poo-pooed the whole idea so he never did but my uncles did his father did i mean it, it's forever and whenever the coins were lost or misplaced they went berserk looking for them <laughs> right <laughs> so when you're when you were telling me this i'm like when i'm listening to this because if when on your show when you're when your podcast is running, it feels like I'm sitting in the room with you. Thank That's you. I appreciate it's, that. It's, un, it's, it's that. It feels that intimate. I so when you're telling the story, I'm like, oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling around my pocket. Where's my coin? Where's my coin? And I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I doing this? So I'm like, all right, when we get him on, I got to talk to him about it. I got to find out what else he knows. Yeah, it was that is a very strange experience for for the people who didn't listen to the show or don't know what that show is about. Um, I met a woman who was a traditional kind of folklore um, 
for better, for lack of a better word, kind of which, which, mm -hmm. um, and she introduced me to a man who I had been shown pictures of him at his funeral. Uh, I had believed him to be dead and, and I was introduced to him. Uh, he was working as a janitor nights in a, in a school in Detroit. And so he was literally a zombie. He was someone who had uh, wronged uh, the sister of the woman I was friends with, and he died, supposedly. You know, there's this very weird, uh, they were of uh, descent of New Orleans, through, and then, well, originally of Haiti. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I feel in, in that episode of Realm of the Weird, like that was an actual encounter I had with a, a zombie, like not a zombie in the brain-eating sense, but a zombie in the sense that they had used some kind of chemical, some kind of traditional uh, remedy to brain damage this person who had been, in their minds, evil. And Auntie, who gave me the silver coin, explained that as long as I kept a silver coin and, and I was in possession of it, nothing could ever, no, no harm could ever befall me. And I still carry my silver coin around with me. Mm. And it was just, it's one of those really fascinating experiences. You know, there's no ghost involved, there's no UFO involved, but it brings us to a much stranger reality, which is if there is a traditional kind of Haitian zombie working that I know of one, you know, in Detroit, like, how often does that happen? Mm. How, how often do families still continue to do that? And maybe, you know, it might not be that prevalent in America, but if one guy in Detroit knows one guy who's a brain-damaged zombie in Detroit, like, we can assume that maybe there is one guy in each state that knows one guy, which would be 50 people. That's an amazing, strange world that we live in. If people are, you know, these people are brain-damaging you know, auntie and her family who did this performed whatever they did on this man to to make him in, in that way. I mean, that's something that you go to jail for. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, they they faked a person's death. They, you know, claimed his Social Security benefits, which is Ooh. how they paid for his one room efficiency that they picked him up from and dropped him off at every day so he could go and push a broom around this school at night. Uh, the people at the school, I'm assuming, were paid off to not mention anything. So it runs really deep. Right, right. Wow. So, you know, the, the reason why I know why my grandfather carried one. Okay. And he, he was a practitioner of Santeria. Okay. So that and that was hit. I am, I'm assuming that his father is the one that started it. And he was he was an escapee from the whole slave movement. He moved, he ran to Puerto Rico to get okay. away from being traded or sold or whatever here in the States or wherever he was destined for. Him and a bunch of other people took a ship or whatever, a boat or, I don't know, an inflatable something, a kayak, <laughs> I don't know, and, and went to Puerto Rico, of all places. I'm like, there's better places to go. I would have, you know, preferred somewhere probably not as hot, but whatever. And he he carried coins. So when my when my grandfather died, the family swooped in and took the coins. My aunt took the coins. Right. Now, those coins were supposed to be mine. Mm -hmm. And I still, to this day, I, every once in a while, I'll ask my aunt about the coins, and I'll just get a smirk. I know they're still in that leather bag. I know right. they are. And right. I know that they're somewhere in her house. Now, she's told me before that when she goes, I'll finally get what's mine. But I'm like, all right, why do I have to wait? <laughs> I want <laughs> <Right>. it now. <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. I mean, they took some of his books. They took his... They took his coins. They took a lot of his stuff that was left behind. 
Well, that he was killed himself when I was just eight years old. So it was I knew I understand that they didn't want to give it to me when I was a child. Right. But I mean, I'm 36. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, you know, it's it's weird with with uh, Auntie Lottery and the, and the family that I was involved with at the time, because, you know, there there becomes this blend of because I say that they're from Haiti and, and you know, almost voodoo practitioners. But there is a large amount of Santeria involved with what they were. Pract- I mean, everyone in the family, you know what a prenda is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone in the family had a prenda. Mm-hmm. So. You know, there's this mix of culture. Plus, they were they were all going to church on Sunday to a Catholic church. So, I mean, it's really bizarre when people you watch how society moves and shapes and forms. And you think that people are either, you know, these really rugged Catholics or Christians or atheists. But yet at the same time, you know, atheists will say, God bless you without realizing it. And Catholics have prendas in their living room. Yeah, right. So it's it's a really, it really is. I mean, that's what fascinates me the most. And that's why I love to talk to people and exchange ideas so much. Why do you believe what you believe? How did it become that way? And uh, I've released a couple of books uh, this year. One of them is called uh, Ghosties, Haunts, and Conjures. And it's the narratives of former American slaves Hmm. talking about their experiences with ghosts and, and magic. And what's interesting is to look at those narratives, which were recorded in the 1930s and 40s through the Library of Congress. When you look through those narratives and you find that like there's a wagon full of slaves and it gets hit by a train. And so if you put your wagon on the train tracks, the ghosts of the slaves push you off. And now if you look around through paranormal websites, you hear stories about a school bus full of children parked on a train track that gets hit by a train. If you park your car on the train tracks, the ghosts of the children push you off. So you yeah. have you have these uh, these folkloric tales that take on new life, new dimension, and uh, new descriptions to match the culture which is telling them. Right. Well, it's just another book I'm going to have to buy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you about episode eight called The Neighborhood. And that one, you go out of town on a paranormal convention. Yes. And you talk in there about how um, your car goes off the road and you get into an accident. And then you're basically stuck in this town without a vehicle while the convention's going on. And then one night you go out to have dinner and you end up at this diner out there. You have dinner there. You talk to various people within the diner. You interact with them. Uh, they somewhat get to know you. And then you go back to it. And then at the, at the end of the story, you come to find out that this diner doesn't isn't there. It doesn't exist. Yet you have names that are given to you of people and stuff in the diner by the people that are there giving you names. Um, at the end of the episode, you ask, if anybody knows anything about this diner and these people, could you please get in contact with me? Have you ever heard any follow-up to that story? I have, actually. You know, that's Ooh. there's a lot of weird stuff that's happened to me throughout my life. And, and that episode, that actually took place in Decatur, Illinois, was the city that where... Um, you know, I, I could tell you the hotel and, and I've told people who needed more information. But uh, when I put that message out at the end of Realm of the Weird, asking people if they knew either of the two people that I could remember sitting with in the diner, it was about um, probably about four months ago. So that episode was out for almost a year. It was probably about four months ago that someone emailed me and said, I, I have a, a person in my family who has that name. Uh, I can send you a photograph of her and you can tell me if it's true. And it and it really did. I mean, I can't, you know, it's kind of anecdotal because I'm my own evidence. So I can't really say anything beyond it. But uh, it was the person that I saw in the diner. It is this person's grandmother. And she died in 1973. <gasps> no. 
Yeah. Wow, that's wicked cool. So I mean, that's huh. a it's a it's a extreme. It's I don't know if you want to call it a time slip or if dimensions cross or if I'm just insane. But I mean, it. it... <laughs> I don't think you're insane. <laughs> well, you know, you you really do. You you have to like start questioning your reality when you know I ate at that diner twice, and both times that I had to walk there because my I was driving a pickup truck that got in a car accident. And both times that I I went there. I was kind of involved in these really weird snowstorms, and but once I got there, you know, I, I can tell you right now, I had I had waffles the first time that I went there. I had uh, kind of like a almost like a skillet breakfast the next time I was there. I mean, I remember the food, I remember the place, I remember what it looks like, I remember like talking and hearing the people's voices, and then to get my truck fixed a few days later and drive back to like say goodbye to the cook or, or the waitress and and there's nothing there i mean it is just a forest that's there there's nothing there's no dirt road that leads to a place that used to be there no one in the area has ever heard of a restaurant being there so you really do start to doubt you know not only your sanity but how real is the reality that you're living in See and then come, then you come to find out that one of the people might be someone who's been dead for 40 years so there was no reaction from the people that worked there to suggest that they weren't anything other than, you know, normal people just hanging out inside of a diner. Just absolutely normal sitting at a diner in a city that you have never been to eating food. Wow. And See, you know, never... I've had something similar to that happen when I was younger, but it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't, I had conversations with this gentleman and he, he looked like he, for all intents and purposes, he looked like Hercule Perot. Okay. And I had conversations with this cat on more than one occasion and got some really interesting information from him, true information, because I went and looked it up afterwards. And no one's ever seen the guy. People saw me going to the place where I said I saw him. Right. And people saw me coming back from where I saw him. But no one has seen the guy. No one knows who he is. No one's heard of him before. And there were people that were probably within earshot of where I was standing that should have seen me. They saw me, but they didn't see the cat that I was talking to. And I know he was real because I shook his hand. Right. (laughs) You know, you don't, I mean, I mean, um, maybe, you know, I I understand hallucination and I understand, you know, being in in an altered state. But, I mean, when you can feel a person's hand and it's warm. Well, he had waffles, so he can understand what you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you had waffles in a skillet breakfast. You understand. I mean, right? Absolutely. You know, so there was I mean, an ep- there was an episode of Realm of the Weird, which I actually didn't do. If you kind of look back through, you'll see that I was going to post one, and then I ended up not posting it. And I kind of put a description of why I didn't. But uh, I I found a case that I hadn't thought about in a while, and it was where I had been contacted by this guy, and he wanted to talk to me, and uh, he was actually checked into a mental clinic yeah. in Michigan. And, uh, I talked to him a few times and then I went to the, to the clinic and and talked to him there and and he was convinced that he was a time traveler Hmm. and he was trying to explain to me the fact that, uh, his body wasn't time traveling as much as his mind was time traveling backward and forward through different parts of his life. And, you know, I talked to him because I'm that type of person and I, he seemed like someone that needed to be talked to and. But I realized, you know, talking to the hospital, you know, he had checked himself in. He had kind of just come in off the street and they checked him in. He, he self-checked in. And then I lost touch with him 
for about four or five years. I just no communication with him. He checked himself out of the hospital and kind of disappeared into society. So I recorded uh, Realm of the Weird. It was going to be, I think, the third or fourth episode. And it was all about this guy who might have been a time traveler. Now, I record the episodes just in my house by myself. I don't tell anybody what the next episode is really going to be about. I might leak a little trailer here and there, but it's really nonspecific. The day before I posted that episode, I got a, an email from him. And the email said, uh, I just wanted to let you know I'm doing fine. I hope everything's going well for you. And when I listened back to that episode of Realm of the Weird, there's a transcript of he and I that I recorded of, of us talking. And there's a part in there where he says, and it was actually in the episode of Realm of the Weird, it says, um, we're not going to talk for a long time, but you're going to tell this story years from now. And and it freaked me out so bad that I never ended up posting that episode. <laughs> oh, you got to post it now. Yeah, now you got to put it on. Now you got to post it. Because <laughs> these people that are here, they're going to be going there looking for it now at this point. <laughs> but it was just such a freaky experience to have someone saying, you know, I'm a time traveler. I know the things you're going to do. I know the things you're not going to do. And then you lose touch with them. And then, you know, you start to think about them again for a week. And then, and then they contact you. And it's almost as if they knew in advance that you were going to do this thing. Do you have any standout cases of anything that you've covered that really stick out in your head as something that keeps coming back year after year or like you'll forget about it, then it'll pop back in your head? Do you have anything like that that really stands out to you? Not necessarily ghost or UFO, just whatever. Uh, personally, you mean? Yeah. Or anything, really, because you, you investigate all kinds of stuff. You investigate more than just ghosts. It sounds like you pretty much run the gambit of, if it's strange, contact you, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I found out a long time ago that you can't tell people. I mean, I often tell stories about some of the weirder things. I had a woman who contacted me that was seeing UFOs. She would sit at her computer, look out her print window. There was a construction site across the street from her house, and she would see UFOs all the time. So we talked back and forth until I thought maybe she was kind of credible. Maybe she had some decent information. And so I drove out to her location without telling her I'd be there and uh, sat outside, saw her house, saw her bay window. I could see her computer. I could see her sitting at it. I sat out all night long, looked at the construction site, didn't see any UFOs, drove home the next day, called her and said, did you see UFOs last night? She said, oh, yeah, they were all over the sky. There was actually an alien walking around the property. And I said, well, I was there. I didn't see anything. And she said, well, of course you didn't see anything. I'm the only one who can see them. Oh. <laughs> then she proceeds, the floodgates open, and she proceeds to tell me about how the birds in her backyards can transform into aliens. And there was an alien in her house one time who turned into a kitchen cupboard door. Uh, there was an alien that slipped on the ice on her sidewalk. And so, I mean, I don't know if I keep coming back to it, but that keeps me grounded when I know that someone can start off sounding totally rational and it can just lead you down this rabbit hole of almost pure insanity yeah i've been there <laughs> i have, wow. i have been there i i got caught up with a friend of mine she's since passed on but she for all intents and purposes she was like the queen of normal right and she carried herself normal she carried herself in a dignified manner but the minute you got her into a situation that was outside that realm of normality. She went insane. Yeah. But she would, it would, it would switch on and off. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was the strangest thing to watch. And in the beginning I was like, okay, this is interesting. 
And then it got to a point where she's going to hurt herself. And then it was, she's going to hurt somebody else and it's not going to be me. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Because you know, I had to pin her down one time and I'm like, okay, we're good. We're here. Everything's cool. You need to stop because this is not conducive to healthy behavior. Right. Yeah, absolutely. She, she, God bless her. She's passed on. But to look at her from the outside and listen to her talk, she portrayed herself as a normal, everyday person. How do you but, handle yourself when you get into it? Do you've run into situations like that where you've gone into, you know, investigations or something and you get there and things are really screwy and you find yourself in deeper than you thought you would, you know, be able to, that you were expecting, you know, how, how do you handle something like that when that happens? For me, you know, now because of the length of time that I've been involved in doing this type of stuff, I have a certain protocol that I follow. So it doesn't happen that much anymore. I mean, when someone contacts me, there are weeks of, of contact that aren't in person before we meet in person. Then when we do meet in person, we meet at a neutral location uh, surrounded by people. Uh, and so, you know, now I've learned how to be more discerning when I'm dealing with clients. Uh, but in the past, it sometimes did get pretty hairy. You'd show up and someone would have, you know, there was one one client who seemed really normal. And this is maybe 10 years ago. And, and when I met him at his house, you know, it was... I don't know how to explain it, but it was like one step down from Ed Gein's house. Do you know who oh Ed Gein God. is? <laughs> like, like he didn't have actual body parts strewn about the house, but there were he had like hundreds of thousands of cutout pictures of legs in his kitchen. Oh. And I was like, yeah, I got to start. I got to start being more uh, understanding of how did this process of interviewing people is going to go, which is not going to be in their house. So. I mean, it doesn't happen anymore, but, um, you know, one of the things that has affected me throughout my life that I've only recently is, uh, started to discuss when we talk about cases that make me think in a certain way or, or generate new ideas. About 11 years ago, uh, I was, uh, we can get into more detail about this so I can explain more readily how it works, but I was a, a impartial third observer during a Vatican-sponsored exorcism, and that I've only really been able to talk about in the past three or four years because of the psychological process of making that a thing that I could talk about in my day-to-day -day life took that long. I mean, it took six or seven years for me to be able to really be able to talk about it openly. And if you want to talk about non-disclosure contracts, I don't mind breaking a non-disclosure contract with A&E, but there are some things about that exorcism because of my non-disclosure contract with the Vatican. I will not break an NDA <laughs> with the Vatican. They are far more powerful and have way more money than a basic cable network. Like they... <laughs> oh, man. They are far larger and scarier than any network you will ever sign a contract with. That's awesome. Wow. Wow. Well, what can you talk about with it then? Well, I can tell you almost uh, for as much as a person can, can claim to know something and say something is true, that when you see an exorcism or anything that's supposedly a real exorcism or a possession portrayed on television or in the movies, it is a total fabrication. I mean, mm. it's it's not done at all. It's not handled at all like you would see on television or in the movies. There is a when I was contacted by them when the Vatican does an exorcism, which they don't actually do that many every year. I mean, it's a it's a pretty uh, sacred thing to them, and there's only uh, a, 
a, a handful of priests that are actually allowed through the Catholic Church to do exorcisms. And I was contacted about three months before the exorcism took place. And the entire time you're being told by the church officials, you know, this isn't probably going to happen. It's probably a psychological disturbance. The person is being tested. Um, so, you know, but be prepared that, you know, if we do think it's going to be necessary, you'll be called. And then I had to go through a bevy of uh, psychological testing, therapy testing, even even um, just physical testing to make sure that I was in decent health and a decent state of mind. And what I was there as, and this is something that you don't see on television or the movies, what I was there as, you have a priest that's performing the exorcism, you have an attendant who's helping the priest, and then you have a person like me who's there for insurance purposes. And I'm there as a completely disinterested third party just to make sure that nothing untoward happens. And that's, you know, something you don't see on television. So, uh, but the process was about three months. And then I got a phone call one day and they said, this is going to happen. And within uh, a few hours, I was at the location and the exorcism began. It went on for 31 hours. Um, you're not allowed to leave once it begins. Once it starts, you're in this room. And the only thing in the room is uh, uh, usually a mattress, something to restrain the person with if need be. The closet, there's a, uh, usually just a, a small bedroom uh, with a closet. The door is taken off its hinges. And if you need to step away from what's happening, you actually just go in the closet and face the wall because you're not allowed to leave the room. Wow. So when you see these exorcisms taking place on television and it's happening just in a bedroom or a living room, like that is not proper procedure. <laughs> and yeah, there's a random pizza guy that wanders up and right, exactly. got Burger King bags. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, there, there's a, and what's really funny, because it is the Vatican and because they have kind of unlimited financial and, and uh, any kind of resources, there are people who are standing out in the hallway, they're standing outside the room the entire time this is process is happening. And if the priest says, this is sound really funny, and it, this didn't happen during my exorcism, but if the priest told the attendant, like get us creamsicles the attendant would say that to the person out in the hallway and within like 30 seconds you would have creamsicles like it's really crazy <laughs> like they, awesome they can make stuff happen it's uh at one point our client one of the things i can talk about which i find super interesting uh and after it's over there's also like about a week period where you break down and everybody talks about what they experienced and what they think they experienced but at one point during the exorcism, the client began to speak Mandarin. Hmm. And this, this was a uh, less than high school educated man in northern Michigan. And so him for, for him to be speaking fluent Mandarin was, was somewhat strange. But the priest uh, told the attendant, we need a Buddhist in here. And, I mean, we're in rural northern Michigan at the time. And the attendant said, we need a Buddhist priest to the people out in the hallway. And within six hours, we had a Buddhist priest in the room. What? With yeah. Oh my God! So I mean, that's how that—that's they can make it happen if it needs. So the to Vatican happen. is the X Men, is what you're really telling us. Yeah, they're awesome. It is really crazy. <laughs> well, the thing that I find weird here is why would the Vatican elaborate on? Well, I don't know if you can. That's what's weird about this. But why would the Vatican need a Buddhist in the room for for a for a Catholic religion? And that isn't that. Doesn't is, that conflict or something? Or is there more going on with the religious aspect of this than is what talked about? Well, this is what I have to be, this is part of what that I have to be careful about. <laughs> okay. But, but roundabout, in the most roundabout way that I can say this so that you can understand exactly what I'm saying and everybody's smart so you'll figure it out. 
Um, in the period after the exorcism takes place, when you're having these kind of conferences for a week where everybody's talking about what they experienced, one of my questions was similar to yours, which is, if this is a Catholic rite, if this is about a certain religion, how does another religion get involved? And in no short order of asking that question, the response was, how can I say this? Uh, if the Vatican and and the people who run the Vatican have been around for a long time. That religion has been around for a very long time. And if people in general believe that they only believe in one way, that's to make it easier for the people. Ah, understood. They have been around long enough to understand far more than what they think the general audiences can accept. The Vatican plays ball with everyone. To a certain degree. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Everybody, everybody involved in, in in the party is cool with this. I'm assuming. <laughs> like the uh, Buddhist, the Buddhist more or less walked in and said, "Yo, what's up? Let's get to work here." And there was no, <laughs> you know, it, it you know, it was like a brother in arms situation when that when that went down here. I guess. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that I find really interesting, and one of the things that fascinates me the most is that. When you come right down to it, humans want to help humans, no matter what happens. So that's the process that was taking place during our exorcism, is that humans were doing whatever needed to be done to help another human being. That's really cool. And and that really, uh, you know, it, it's, I wish, whether it, I'm going to have to, I'll generalize, whether it's Mormonism or um, Judeo-Christianity, Buddhism, uh, Taoism, if the religions that are more closed could admit that more openly. I think that our society has changed to a great degree than it was 100 or 200 years ago. I think that if they could start to admit the inner workings and how closely related they are, it would make our society much easier to live in. Yeah, but that, you're, you're asking for... You're asking miracle? for a miracle in its sense. Yeah, you're asking for a miracle in its sense right there. I understand where you're coming from, but it don't work that way. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. Well, we're going to ask you uh, before you go, if somebody wanted to get into becoming an investigator, be it paranormal, UFO, things like that, what is the right way to do it? I know that's a pretty broad question, but uh, like things like getting Freedom of Information Acts, how does a person go to learn about doing that? How... Um, like when you go to a house or and, and you think that things are a little strange and stuff, you mentioned having interviews with people for a while before you actually go and meet the people in person and then you meet them in a public place. These are things that you don't normally hear about with the world of ghost hunting going on. It's like, okay, well, we're going to go conduct investigation. We're going to go to this house on Tuesday. Right. You know, So if somebody wants to get into this, what kind of advice do you have to offer them? You know, the uh... – the best advice that I can give anyone that's interested in this stuff is, is it, it, I mean, it's going to be pretty general, but, you know, first of all, reading, you have to read whether I, whether or not you have access to the Internet. There are books that will never be available on the Internet just because people don't think that they need to be digitized. I mean, maybe someday the Library of Congress will get around to it, but but there'll be so many that you know you'll never find it. Uh, but reading, the most intelligent people who have ever existed in the world put their knowledge into books and they are freely available to you at any time. Those people wanted you to know things. So read, 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 um, and then ask questions and never be afraid to ask someone. Never be able to say, I don't know. In, in the field of paranormal or anomalistic or conspiratorial research, people are so afraid to say that they don't know something. The whole reason I've done lectures for 25 years is because I don't know anything. 
And I'm, I'm, you know, that's why we do the show. (laughs) We don't know nothing. (laughs) I I don't know anything. I really don't. And so, I mean, ask questions, read books. If you want to know how to file a Freedom of Information Act request, I mean, look at how they're written online. Freedom of Information Act requests are really specific. There's a really uh, specific way that you have to write them if you want decent information. But there are books about it. I learned how to write Freedom of Information Act requests from people who wrote books on about books about it when you first could start doing it in the 70s when the Carter administration passed it. And those books are still there and they still apply. It takes a long time for the government to change how it works. Read, 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 ask questions and be well-rounded. I think that's the other thing too. I didn't ever want to know about how an air intake valve works on a F-89C Scorpion <laughs> airplane, but I'm a well-rounded person. So when that type of airplane disappeared chasing a UFO, I read everything there was to read about F-89C Scorpion airplanes. And so you just have to be willing to let your knowledge grow in any direction that it starts to grow in. So what you're saying is don't watch the first four seasons of Ghost Hunters and just assume that you can go out and start becoming a paranormal investigator. I will tell you right off the bat, I mean, quickly, I know we're wrapping up here, but I will tell you, don't worry about it. You know, when people used to ask me years ago, like, do I think that paranormal shows helped or hindered uh, society and how people portray were portrayed and what people thought about it? My biggest uh, I used to say, like, I I loved Unsolved Mysteries and I loved even X-Files, which was a fictional show because it generated thought in people. But we're at a point now where the shows are limiting people's thought. People watch those shows. They think that's how it's done. They don't think past it. They don't go any deeper than just what they've seen on television in the movies. So at one time, I think it was they were a great thing. But I think right now, it's it, it really is a detriment to the research community because so many people are interested in this, but they think that all of their information can be gathered from a television show. Where can people find you? Go, uh, go ahead and list any of your books, your web pages. Um, I know you're on Facebook. I know you're pretty open to talk to people on Facebook. Absolutely. I'm on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash weird lectures. They can go to weirdlectures.com. The podcast is realmoftheweird.com. Uh, through my Facebook page, you can find my books and my websites. And I'm on Twitter, which is at John E.L. Tenney. And, you know, I don't have fans. I have friends. Any question, I'm one of those people, you know, it's really strange. You'll see uh, people who have 75,000 followers and they're following 85 people and they only respond to two or three whether it be on twitter or facebook i am one of the few people who somehow or another figured out how to i do this this is my full-time job i don't know how i figured (laughs) i mean it took 25 years to be able to do it but this is my full-time job so i have nothing better to do than talk to people (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) we know the feeling believe look for my fan request yeah yep it'll be i'll accept it immediately Yeah, I get we get tons of people through our Facebook page and I run two podcasts. I run this one or another one. And um, I, you know, me and Lobo, we both have tons and tons of people that we know on Facebook and we make every effort we can to try to get out there and talk to those people as much as possible. So I, I can not really, really fans. They're more like family. That's how I. Feel. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we're real close with a lot of the people that listen to the show. We, we make every opportunity we can to try to stay in contact with these meet people as much as possible. We do have a few strange ones, but they don't <laughs> they bug us a whole heck of a lot. So, you know, it's not that bad. But, you know, <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons, too. You know, I, I love I love meeting people and talking to people all the time, too. And that's one of the reasons like sometimes like I'm doing an event in Michigan in June and the event is there's a it's like 
three of the people from Ghost Hunters, and then John Zappas, who's from the Haunted Collector. It's a bunch of television people, and then Is that me. The Fort Wayne one, the Fort yeah. Wayne one you got going. Yeah. Yep. It's a bunch of people, and then me, like somehow or another. <laughs> and me. <laughs> and. Uh, that event, I mean, that event is $225, right? That's an, an enormous amount of money for an event. And, I mean, I don't get paid for that. Like, I'm going there because there are going to be a bunch of people there who watch television shows. And I am going to give a lecture about how they should do more than watch television shows. That's the only, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm going and doing this event is because if someone like me doesn't do it, then the people who become the prime examples of paranormal and anomalistic researchers because of television will stay those prime people. I'm from the school of thought. I, I grew up reading Charles Fort books and yep. Hans Holzer and all of those things. It's no secret where, where I've come from. And in those books, it talks about go and do, do your reading and investigate the locations that you're going through, read about them. You know, and I think if a lot of them are around today, if you were to talk to them, they'd be like, throw that stuff out the window, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I grew up, and since I've done this for a while, you know, I got I I knew people like Hans Holzer and John Keel and some of the big names in the paranormal community before there was television and internet, and they I'm telling you right now they would be shocked at the level of arrogance and ignorance that is portrayed in this field right now. Yeah, but, I'm sure Keel would, because Keel even in interviews with Keel, if you can find him, they would they would say something like, "Well, you saw a ghost," and he'd be, "No, I don't know what I saw." Yeah. You know, and I even now when I tell my stories and people ask me that question, I hear that echoing around in my head. I'm always quick to tell people when they ask me about what I saw, you know, I try to say, I don't know what I saw. I'm not sure what I experienced. I don't know what it was, but this is what this is what I think it is or this is how the experience happened. That's the difference between I think now and then is there's more of this thing now for people to try to latch on to. Oh, this is a ghost or or this is um, this is an experimental little demon or what have you, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I feel uh... Uh, said I did a conference with him in I think in 90 and we were sitting around having coffee afterward and someone at our table said I saw a ghost and this kind of goes back to the multi-dimensional gnome the person said to Keel I think I saw a ghost and he said well do you know it was a ghost and they said no I don't know what it was and he said well then how do you know it's a ghost like you just told me you think you saw a ghost but then five seconds later you admitted you didn't know what it was so did you see a ghost did you see an alien did you have a hallucination were you in a, a waking trance state? Like, how did you jump immediately to the conclusion of ghosts just based on the fact of the two or three books you've read or the lecture that you just heard from someone? The world is far stranger, far weirder than any of us can imagine. Yeah, I think there needs to be more of that out in the field. It was great having you here. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It's nice to be able to talk to somebody local around here as well. But for sure. uh, thank you for coming on Project Archivist, John. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. was mr john eltini uh nice guy real easy guy to talk to obviously 
absolutely. I thought very it was well learned. Person too. Yeah, he's he's really really learned. If you pay attention to his websites and his podcasts and uh, his books, like, I mean everything. Yeah, he's real. He's real intensely studied. I met him last year at the uh, Detroit Comic Con. And uh, he was supposed to be on the show last year, but it just didn't work because, like, there was the one the one time we finally nailed him down, and this huge storm comes through and knocks out power to all weird. of our part of town, and then we couldn't I couldn't even get a hold of him to let him know, hey, we can't do the show tonight. And then at that point, he was busy getting ready to record his next season of the show, so we just couldn't get him on. So the whole thing just kind of fell into oblivion up until just recently, where uh, somehow or another through Facebook we managed to reconnect. And then uh, you know, yeah, he's like, yeah, come on, you know. So there's some other stuff in the works with us right now that fell nicely into place, but we're going to go into that at a later time. But um, I thought it was pretty cool. I'm all like trying to be dodgy and respectful and artful about, you know, bringing up the whole paranormal reality show thing. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. Yeah, right? <laughs> Just pretty this much under the bus. It was great. He's like, I don't care. <laughs> exactly. Unless it's the Catholic Church. Then, well, it's a different story. And it's a I know, right? The Vatican. Don't talk about the Vatican. <laughs> I thought he that was even was respectful funny. in that manner, you know? Yeah, I'm really like the whole that, that whole bring in a, a Buddhist thing really it's it's still rolling around inside my head right now because we're recording this a little while after we did the interview and it's still rolling around inside my head. It makes me wonder, you know, how does all that stuff tie together? How does it actually all work together? Why would why would Catholic priests say uh, we need a Buddhist in creamsicles? Well, I mean, if creamsicles, that's awesome. You know, I mean, if you really think about it, I've, I heard it numerous times before and it was from a, an old timer. And he used to say to me all the time, he says, you think you know what, you, what you're talking about, don't you, young blood? Well, you know what? There's a lot of different roads to the top of the mountain, and you just might be on one of them. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, since we're running short on time, I'm just going to, I guess I'll just close it out now. So this is uh, Rojan. Peace out from the D. This is Lobo from Connecticut with twisted dandelions and nasty grass. <laughs> Peace out, folks. Peace. Someone is taking me